You did a great job winging it. But yes, I'm Dr. Brian Crawford, and it's glad, I'm so glad to be back with you again. I was just here a year ago, and uh, I guess uh, you guys wanted to bring me back, which is really great. And uh, yes, I serve with Chosen People Ministries. We are a mission to the Jewish people, and we are in 20 different countries. We're over 125 years old, and we want to share the gospel with Jewish people all over the world and also help everybody else, both Jewish and Gentile, understand more about who Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, is. And I've served with the ministry since 2011, and it's been a real pleasure and an honor uh, to reach God's chosen people. I'd like to introduce you uh, to my family. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, this is my family, and that's Liz. We've been married for uh, coming up on 16 years. Uh, that's uh, my daughter Natalie. She's nine. David is six, and Nathan is two. And I uh, just love being a dad and a husband. And my wife has been with me the whole time. I was going to be an engineer for the rest of my life, but she was dating me while we went to Israel with our church in 2005, and she has seen this total transformation since uh, God got a hold of my heart for the salvation of the Jewish people. Why don't you go ahead to the next slide? And could we start the timer in the back there? Thank you. Um, so I am the director of digital evangelism for Chosen People Ministries, and I run two major websites, About Messiah and Chosen People Answers. And the focus of these ministries is to defend the good news of Jesus the Messiah towards Jewish people who maybe have questions and objections as to why we should believe in Jesus. Have you ever had questions about who is God? How do we know that he exists? Why should we trust the Bible? Why should we trust the New Testament? These are all very common questions, but Jewish people have them as well. And my ministry is to focus on responding to those questions in a way that makes sense to Jewish people. And uh, I would love to stay in touch with you from here on out so that you would know how to pray for my ministry and stay in touch. And maybe you would have a uh, greater burden for sharing the gospel with Jewish people as well. And so I'm giving you two ways to do that. You can take out your phone and you can scan that QR code and you can sign up for my monthly prayer letter so that you will know how to pray for me and my ministry. Or you can find in the book table the old school way. You can take one of these blue brochures and you can fill out uh, the slip and it explains uh, how to join my team. And as a missionary, I am 100% supported by individuals and families and churches that give of their monthly uh, um, giving to missionaries towards sharing the gospel to the Jewish people. And so if God is calling you this morning to get the gospel to the Jewish people in partnering with me, I would humbly ask that you would pray about that and you can sign up for my prayer letter or uh, fill out the brochure. And if you do fill out one of those brochures, whether digitally or paper, you will get a free copy of Isaiah 53 Explained. Isaiah 53 is the gospel in the Old Testament, written 700 years before Jesus, yet it explains his life, his death, and even his resurrection. If I have five minutes with a Jewish person, I'm going to take them directly to Isaiah 53, and this book will teach you how to share the gospel in that light. I also have some other resources available at the back table, including this book, Messiah in the Passover, which this goes in depth with everything that we're going to do this morning 
with this table, and there's a different chapter. Uh, every chapter is written by a different scholar on a different aspect of the Passover, and it's very comprehensive, and it gets really good on page 99. Yes, I wrote the chapter on Messiah in the Passover in 1 Corinthians, and you can check out that book at the back table. So with that said, why don't we pray as we get into the Passover presentation. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to be a sacrifice for our sins, to take our place on that cross. We deserved death because of our sins, and yet you, Jesus, have taken our place. We worship you and we thank you for that today. And may we have new eyes to see what you did for us, both on your crucifixion day, but also on your last supper, where you gave us the communion elements of the bread and the cup. Help us, Lord, this morning to see what you are doing in giving us these elements, and may we worship you through them. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, we pray. Amen. Now, what you see before me is the setup for a traditional Jewish Passover Seder. Seder is a Hebrew word that means order, because there's a lot of ordering of each of the elements that are up here on the table. There's a set liturgy for how we are supposed to talk about each one of the elements. Now, Jewish people celebrate this all over the world, and they have for thousands of years. You can go to Exodus chapter 12 and you can read in your Bible, the first Passover. And Jewish people celebrate this all over the world, but they don't do it in their synagogues. They do it at home. They do it with dad leading the service, with the family sitting around the table. And it's a wonderful time that everybody celebrates, whether you are very religious or not so religious. Almost every single Jewish family celebrates the Passover. But I've got a question for you. Where are we right now? We're at a church. Why are we, most of us who are not Jewish, I'm not Jewish, why are we celebrating a Jewish tradition? We oftentimes think that Judaism is way over here and Christianity is way over there and never shall the two meet. Well, this morning we need to have a little bit different perspective because, well, who gave us communion? It was Jesus. And where did he get it from? He got it from here. So let's get our juices flowing a little bit this morning with a little joke. The Virgin Mary was not a Catholic, and John was not a Baptist, and Jesus was not a Christian. What were they? They were all Jewish people. And as Jews, they would have celebrated this table every single year of their lives. In fact, because Jesus was Jewish and he was required to follow God's commandments in the Torah, he had to keep this every single year in order to be our Jewish Messiah, or else it would have been sin. And so I think that we ought to have some familiarity with this table that Jesus and the apostles were incredibly familiar with their entire lives, because it helps us answer the question, why did Jesus use the Last Supper to institute the bread and the cup that we are going to partake later this morning? Jesus got that from 
the Passover Seder. And I hope that you will see the reasons why by the time we are done this morning. Now, the way we begin the Passover Seder is by getting rid of all of the leaven from the house. Leaven is yeast. It, uh, it ferments and it makes the bread rise. And so we're supposed to get rid of all the leaven from the house. So I want you to imagine that you're not in church anymore. This is our house. And I'm not a visiting guest speaker. I am your dad. And I know that's a little hard for some of you to imagine that I'm your dad, but I'm your dad and I'm leading us through the Passover and you are all sitting around our very large Passover table in our home. And we have just spent days looking through all of the cupboards, getting rid of all of the bread made with yeast from the house. Now, technically, the, the, the house stops at those doors because I saw those bagels out there. We're not going to count those. So I'm going to declare the house clean. Now, why do we do this? Well, two things. First, bread made without yeast, you can make it quicker. It doesn't need to rise. That's a symbol of how the Jewish people didn't have time for the bread to rise before they escaped from Egypt. So that's the biblical reason. But the rabbis say, well, there's something deeper going on here. Leaven, or yeast, works by fermentation, by decomposition. And by removing all of the yeast from the house, it's like we're figuratively saying to God, we don't want decomposition or sin in our midst. We want to get rid of sin from our house before we begin this holy ceremony. And so, symbolically, by removing the bread from the house, we are saying, God, please enter in here. I do not want to be sinning against you. So, now that we have gotten rid of the bread from the house, we can begin the Seder. The way that we do that is by the lighting of the candles. Now, the focus is on me for the rest of the time. The focus is on dad. Dad leads the whole Seder, but dad cannot do a single thing until the woman of the household lights the candles. And so I cannot do that. I'm going to invite Debbie to come up here, and she is going to light the Passover candles, which is an honor because she gets all the credit for being the one to start the Passover. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. I think it's very appropriate that it's the woman who brings the light to begin the Passover Seder. Because even though the focus is on me for the rest of the time, nothing could have started without her in the same way. That the focus was on Jesus for his entire time of ministry, but nothing could have begun. The incarnation of the Son of God could not have occurred unless there was a Jewish woman who had said, Here I am, Lord. I will do as you ask. Yes, it was through a woman, Mary. Miriam is her Hebrew name, that the light of the world was born. The Passover Seder is structured around four separate cups of wine. Each one of the cups has a special significance. And there is a special uh, name for each one of them. This one is called the Kiddush, or the Cup of Blessing. And there is a traditional Hebrew blessing that goes over the cup that goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei And now your next Hebrew word. Amen. Everyone with me. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, the creator of the fruit of the vine. Amen.
perhaps there are many of you who have never actually stopped to consider why in the world you say a Hebrew word at the end of your prayers. Why do you do that? Why don't you say the English equivalent, so be it, Lord? Why don't we do that? We say amen. Someone taught you how to pray, and someone taught them how to pray. And if you go back far enough, the first Gentile believers in Jesus were taught how to pray by Jewish believers in Jesus. And they taught them to end their prayers with amen. So the very fact that you pray with amen at the end of your prayers is a reminder of the Jewishness of your faith, perhaps that you hadn't even considered. Now is the time where we tell the Passover story, the story of God redeeming his people Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, from the house of slavery. And it's a wonderful story of God sending Moses to bring 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt. And the 10th plague was the worst. The 10th plague required that Israel listen to God and be faithful and trust that if they sacrificed a lamb, and painted its blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes, then the angel of death would pass over them and they would be spared. But if they didn't, or if the Egyptians didn't, then they lost their firstborn sons. And so Passover is a reminder that Israel was saved from the plague through the blood of a lamb. And we are now going to walk our way through the story through our taste buds, through our experiences. And uh, I encourage you in your Bible study this next week to spend some time in Exodus chapter 12 where you can read the fuller story of what we're about to experience now. But everything on the table is supposed to tell the story in an experiential way. The first thing that we are going to do is the carpas or the greens. This is a green leafy plant, typically parsley, it's supposed to signify life, because it's green. Life is good. Life is beautiful. But it also signifies the hyssop branches that the Israelites used to dip into the lamb's blood and paint onto the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. And the tradition is, is to take this sprig of parsley and to dip it into salt water. And then to eat And it's not supposed to taste good. It's supposed to taste horrible. And Pastor Sean makes a mean salt water. It's pretty bad. It's supposed to be a reminder that even if you are God's chosen people, even if God has entered into a covenant with you, even if he has said, I love you and I will be with you, that does not mean that life will not be full of bitter tears. The Jewish people know far better than any other people on the planet of the falsehood of the prosperity gospel, that you are not guaranteed life, health, wealth, and happiness in all of your days simply because you are in relationship with God. The Jewish people know that life is often full of bitter tears. The next thing we'll talk about is the matzatash. Nobody knows where this tradition comes from, but this is the matzatash. It is a bag that has three compartments. And in each one of the compartments, there's a piece of matzah. The tradition is to take the middle piece of matzah, 
not the first, not the third, but the middle piece of matzah out from the bag. Now, matzah is simply bread made without yeast, so it does not rise. It's, it's hard like a cracker. It's also pierced so that it does not crack during the baking process. And there's a traditional Hebrew blessing that is sung over the bread that goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings up bread from the earth. Amen. Tradition is for dad to break it in half, put half of it back into the middle compartment of the matzatash, and now the other half is no longer matzah. This is now called the afikomen. Everyone say it with me, afikomen. Now you may think that I just taught you another Hebrew word, but no, it's Greek to you. Yes, this is a Greek word, which is really interesting. Jewish people don't know where this whole tradition with the afikomen and the uh, matzatash comes from, but Jewish people only spoke Greek for several centuries before Jesus and several centuries after. So if they're calling this tradition by a Greek word, then this comes from that period. So we don't know for sure if Jesus had this at his Last Supper, but I tend to believe he did. And we'll come back to that towards the end of our time together. But the tradition is for dad to take the afikomen, and he runs off into the house. And he hides it somewhere that nobody knows, because at the end of dinner, all the kids get to go run off into the house to find the hidden afikomen. It's like a Jewish Easter egg hunt. And whoever finds the hidden afikomen brings it back to dad and gets a prize. And so we will come back to the afikomen a little bit later. Next thing we'll talk about is the second cup, the cup of judgment. This is when we remember the plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt because they did not choose to listen to the God of Israel through Moses. Now, the Jewish people are not celebrating this fact. They're not saying, yeah, God, you took out those Egyptians. No, they're mourning. It is always better to listen to God rather than to undergo his judgment and punishment for you not listening to him. And so the Jewish people take the wine, which is a symbol of joy, and then they take their pinky and remove a drop of joy from the cup after reciting the names of each of the ten plagues. So I want everybody to get out your pinky, and I want you to repeat after me, making the motion as you're removing the, the joy from the cup, repeat after me the names of each of the ten plagues. Here we go. Blood. Frogs, vermin, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, slaying the firstborn. And now we drink with the same Hebrew blessing as before, the second cup, the cup of judgment. Okay, now is the time that if you've ever done the Passover Seder before, you remember the most. It is the maror, the bitter herb. In Exodus chapter 12, you're required to eat the bitter herb during the Passover Seder. 
but I need to keep preaching up here without my sinuses being on fire. So I would like to ask for a volunteer to come up and to eat the bitter herb. I met you before, Heaven. Come on up here. Yeah, everybody give Heaven a round of applause. Come on up here. Yeah, come around the table. Okay, so the tradition is to take a piece of matzah and we dip it into the horseradish. A big chunk of it. Big, big chunk of it. Because the horseradish is a symbol for slavery. It is supposed to tell you through your own taste buds, how horrible slavery is. Now, the rabbis were having a discussion one day, and they said, how do we know that we put enough horseradish on our matzah? And they said, if you don't cry, you didn't put enough on. <laughs> so, Heaven, any last words? Okay, you ready for this? Okay, here you go. One big, one big bite. Yeah, just go for it. Oh, no. <laughs> She's asking for more slavery. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to have mercy on you, and we're going to take a second piece of matzah, and this is called charoset. Everyone say charoset. If you said that correctly, you spat up on your neighbor. So we take this piece of matzah, and we put it in the charoset, which is made out of apples, nuts, and honey. It's a sweet mixture and it symbolizes the mortar that the Israelites used to make bricks while they were slaves. And I think this is going to taste a little bit better. So go ahead and take a big bite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot better, right? Everybody give heaven a round of applause. So both of these symbolize the slavery that the Israelites were in during their time in Egypt. And the rabbis were having a discussion. They said, well, we understand why the horseradish signifies slavery. It tastes horrible. But what about the charoset? It's so sweet. And they said, well, that is a reminder that even in the most bitter of times, yes, I would, I would, I would need some water as well. <laughs> and she was asking for more. Yeah. The rabbi said that this charoset is a reminder that even in the bitterest of times, the sweetness of God is near. Isn't that true? Next thing is this shank bone of a lamb. This is an actual lamb shank bone, and it is placed on every single Jewish Passover Seder plate. And I forgot to mention that all of these elements are typically placed on a beautiful plate like this, which, with each of the compartments having a different Hebrew name. And this bone is placed on the plate as a reminder of the sacrifices that used to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. But today, Jewish people say, it is against Jewish law to eat lamb on Passover. Well, wait a minute. If you read the Torah, if you read the laws of Moses... It requires Israel to sacrifice a lamb and eat it on Passover. But now, Jewish people say you can't do that anymore? Why not? Well, the Torah also says that there is only one place on the planet where you are allowed to sacrifice the lambs. And that is the temple in Jerusalem. 
But ever since 70 AD, when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, there has been no appointed place where the Jewish people could sacrifice lambs. And because they cannot sacrifice lambs, they don't eat lamb on Passover anymore. And instead, they substitute with just a lamb shank bone. In the same way, they take an egg, which is a symbol of life, the life that used to be sacrificed at the temple, and they place this on their Seder plate as well. Now, these elements were not on Jesus' Last Supper table because he, as a Jew, was living during the time of the Second Temple, before the Romans came and destroyed it. And so he would have had lamb for dinner. He would have been able to go to the temple and have Peter and John prepare a sacrifice there. So these elements, the bone and the egg, they are a reminder of how much Judaism has changed. The Judaism of today is not the same as the Judaism of Jesus' day. Now is the time that we break for dinner. So mom comes out from kitchen with a chicken casserole, matzo ball soup, gefilte fish, chopped liver, you know, all that stuff that you guys just love to eat. And we all just have a great feast all together around the table. And because there is no ability for the Jewish people to eat all of the lamb as required by Moses, they transfer that commandment to the matzah, which means they take all the matzah out of the matzatash and they eat all of it throughout the dinner so that by the end of dinner, the only matzah that is left in the house is where? It's hidden. So dinner's over. Dad sends the kids off into the house and they find the hidden afikomen. What was lost is found, is given back to the father, and the father now breaks the piece, the, the afikomen into small pieces for everybody in attendance. And everybody is supposed to look at this afikomen and think that it is the dessert of desserts. Because you only have one opportunity in the entire year to keep the commandment to keep the Passover, to observe the Passover. Now is your only chance. And according to the Bible, if you keep God's commandments, you will be blessed. So by eating this afikomen, you are supposed to think about how God is going to bless you for an entire year because you were faithful to keep his commandment. And that is why this is the dessert of desserts eaten right after the meal. Then we come to the third cup. This is the cup of redemption. No longer are we slaves in Egypt at this point. Now we have transferred to being free men and women going out into the desert with Moses as our leader. We're streaming towards Mount Sinai where God is going to give us a new covenant to explain our relationship with him. And so we say the traditional Jewish blessing in Hebrew, and we drink the third cup, the cup of redemption. What better way to celebrate our redemption from slavery than by having a worship service? So now the whole family starts singing the Psalms 113 through 118 in the original Hebrew. And I would encourage you to go to those Psalms this week and see their connections with the Passover and how God is the one who redeems his people from 
their exile and from their slavery. And so after that time of worship as a family is done, then we come to the fourth and the final cup. This is called the cup of praise because we're praising God for the salvation that he has brought us from the house of slavery. And so we say the traditional Hebrew blessing and we drink. So, we've been through all the elements on the table. We've had the four cups of wine, which means that in a traditional Jewish family, it gets a little interesting at this point. But I neglected to mention that we said a special Calvary Chapel prayer over the wine earlier, and it miraculously turned into grape juice. So I don't have any of those problems here this morning. But there's one last thing to do before the traditional Jewish Passover Seder is complete. And that's for all of us to say in unison, next year in Jerusalem. Because the Jewish people know that there are many prophecies in the Hebrew Bible that God would one day do a new exodus. That God would repeat what he did in Egypt with all the Jewish people scattered all over the globe. Today, there are Jewish people in Colorado. Today, there are Jewish people in London, in France. But the prophecies say that one day, God will bring them all back where? To Israel, to the Holy Land. And so the whole Jewish nation says next year in Jerusalem in expectation that although right now we may be celebrating the Passover in Colorado, may it be true that next year we will be in Jerusalem, not with dad leading the Passover, but with Messiah leading the Passover. So let's all say in unison next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. And with that, the traditional Jewish Passover Seder is complete. But I return back to one of my opening questions. What does this have to do with us as followers of Jesus? Most of us are Gentiles. We are not under the law of Moses. Why are we doing any of this in a church of all places? Well, I want to maybe pique your memory a little bit. Do you guys remember that great dinner that we had, you know, with the gefilte fish and the matzo ball soup? And, oh, it was so good, wasn't it? After dinner, we ate some bread and we drank some wine. Does that remind you of anything anywhere in the New Testament? Because it should. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 22. We're also going to have the verses up on the screen. Luke chapter 22, and we are going to start in verse 7. Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. Pause. You may have read that in the past, and it just went right over your head. Like, what does that mean? Go and prepare the Passover? You see, Jesus is Jewish, and he's speaking to two Jewish disciples. They know what it means, but perhaps you didn't. And the Gospels don't say what they were actually supposed to do. So let me explain a little bit more. 
When Jesus said, go and prepare the Passover, that means, hey, Peter and John, go into town, go find a one-year-old lamb, go take it to the priest in Jerusalem in the temple, go sacrifice it, then bring it back to a private room where we can all sit around a table like this and we can have a private moment going through the Passover Seder. Make sure that you get the unleavened bread, make sure that you get the bitter herb, make sure that we have a place where we can have privacy and worship God together. That is what Jesus just asked his disciples to do. Now let's skip down to verse 14. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was taking already existing Jewish traditions. And he was saying that these are talking about me. What was Jesus saying? Why did he choose to use the bread and the cup from the traditional Jewish Passover Seder to point to himself? And why is it important that we do this often to remember him? Let's look at each of these elements, starting with the bread. This bread is no regular bread. This is matzah, bread made without yeast, thereby signifying a sin-free bread. It says in the Gospel in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, that the Messiah would never tell a lie and would do no violence. Now, how many of you, by a show of hands, have never told a lie? If you raised your hand, liar. Liar, right there. Okay, you just broke it. You can never raise your hand ever again. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us can stand before God and say, I'm good enough to be in your presence. I am good enough to go to heaven. No, no, no. None of us fit that description. But the Messiah would be sinless. He would never do any wrong. This bread also is pierced so that it does not crack during the baking process. In the same way that the gospel in the Old Testament, written 700 years before Jesus, said that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brings us shalom would be on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, this bread shows us the price of our redemption. A sinless, broken, pierced Messiah who has no sin himself and yet gives of himself so that we as sinners can have atonement and forgiveness 
and peace with God. That is what this is all about. But this isn't just regular matzah that I'm holding up. This is the afikomen. Do you guys remember where the afikomen comes from? It comes from this bag. And Jewish people don't know where this tradition comes from. You get some rabbis arguing about what this means, and they say, oh, I know, I know. There's one bag with three compartments because it refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then another rabbi stands up and says, oh, you got it totally wrong. No, this is the priests and the Levites and the other tribes of Israel. But when you get two rabbis arguing about anything, they always leave with at least three opinions. Nobody agrees. So I think Messianic Jews, Jews who believe in Jesus, have a better understanding of the symbolism of this tradition. We believe in one God, yes? But our one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it was not the Father who was broken on the cross. It was not the Holy Spirit who bled on the tree. It was the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus, our Messiah, who was taken by his Father. And according to Isaiah 53, the gospel in the Old Testament, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. And then the Father took him and hid him in a tomb. Now, earlier I told you the end of the story. I told you that the kids would go at the end of dinner and find the hidden afikomen. And you understood what I was saying. There was no fear. There's, you understood what was going on. You knew that what was lost would be found. Jesus did the same thing with his disciples. He said, I am going to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed. I will be tried and I will die. But on the third day, I will rise from the dead. The disciples heard his message, and it went whoosh, right over their head. They did not understand the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. So when Jesus was dead and buried, they thought that's the end. We picked the wrong guy. Messiahs are not supposed to die. Messiahs are supposed to reign forever. I guess we should start walking back home, walk our way back to Emmaus with our heads held low. We thought we had the right guy. What about all the miracles? What about his teachings? Man, we really messed up. But is that true? No. Because on the third day, just as Jesus prophesied, what was lost was found. And Jesus rose from the dead, and he was given back to his Father. And now his Father gives him to us as the true bread of life, who does not bring blessing only for one year, but for all eternity. Jesus is the true bread of life, the one who gives you life to the fullest, that without him there is no life. There is only mediocre life. He is life to the fullest. Jesus also took the cup. 
And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Now, Jesus is Jewish, and he's speaking to Jewish disciples. There's not a single Gentile in the room. When Jewish people hear the word covenant, they ought to think of one thing. God's relationship commitments between himself and Israel. A covenant is a relationship agreement, a commitment between God and people. And there are multiple covenants in the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus is saying this is a new covenant. And it's a new covenant in his blood. You see, because within 24 hours, Jesus is going to die a bloody death on that Roman execution stake. And his blood is going to be the price to pay for God entering into a new relationship with people. A new relationship of love and forgiveness of your sin and atonement and relationship. Now, we don't really use the word covenant that often in modern English, but we do use the word marriage. And marriage is, according to God's design, supposed to be a lifelong covenant commitment between one man and one woman for life. And marriage is patterned off of the covenants in Scripture. Now, we understand in modern culture and in many cultures around the world that if a man wants to enter into a marriage with his bride-to-be, then he's got to pay a price. And what do we do in our culture? We as guys, we save up a whole lot of money We don't buy that new car. We don't waste our time on Xbox games. We save up lots of money. We gotta get a job so that we can buy what? A diamond ring. And what is it about this rock that is so important? It's expensive. It requires us to say no to ourselves. And it signifies to our bride-to-be, I am willing to say no to myself so that I can say yes to you and our future family. You can depend on me. See, this is a token of my trust. Now, what if, what if the boyfriend were to get down on one knee and he were to whip out a plastic ring from a Cracker Jack box? What would that communicate to the girlfriend? He doesn't care. Get out of there. Run away. He doesn't care about you. Jesus is doing the exact opposite. In effect, as he raises this cup, he is offering a new marriage relationship between you and the God of the universe. And he is saying, this is the price that I am willing to pay for you. This is the price. I am willing to give everything, my very life, because I love you. It is as if Jesus is down on one knee and he is asking, will you marry me? The question is, have you said yes? Have you accepted Jesus' marriage proposal? He offers you not just some religion, not a bunch of rules. He offers you a covenant marriage relationship between you and him for ever. And that entails you repenting of your sins, turning away from your old way of life, 
Just like you leave all those girlfriends behind so you can be married to the one. You turn away from that old life, you ask for Jesus' forgiveness, and you come into a relationship with him as your master and Lord. Have you done that today? If you haven't, then let this be the day of you coming into that relationship with Jesus. You see, there's a reason why the scriptures say that we ought not take communion unless we believe in Jesus. It's because only those who believe in Jesus have said, yes, I do, to Jesus' marriage proposal. And so, if you have already said yes to Jesus, then what are we doing when we take communion? I propose that when we take communion, we are renewing our wedding vows to Jesus. We are saying, yes, I said I do way back when, when I was first born again, but I still say I do today. And so as you take communion in just a few minutes now, may Jesus' life, his death, his broken body, his shed blood, and his new covenant relationship with you be on your heart and on your mind. Now there's one last thing that I want to mention before we transition to communion. It is this empty chair, empty place setting. This is set up in every single Jewish household for Elijah because it is believed that Elijah will come on the evening of Passover to announce the coming of the Messianic kingdom. Now the Jewish people are correct about that. Problem is, is that they've missed it by 2,000 years. You see, John the Baptist, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. And Jesus himself is the Jewish Messiah. And so this empty place setting should break our hearts. Because the Jewish people are looking for an Elijah and a Messiah who have already come. We need to get the gospel to the Jewish people. We need to share the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. And that is my heart and my passion as a missionary to the Jewish people. And again, I would ask you to stay connected with me. Sign up for my prayer letter. Ask me any questions that you might have at the book table. Buy any of the resources so that you too can grow in your passion and your prayers for the salvation of the Jewish people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for what you have done in sending your son, Jesus the Messiah, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. And I pray, Father, that you would be near each one of us in this room. If we have not yet accepted you as our Lord and Messiah, may today be the day. For the rest of us who have already entered into that new covenant relationship, may you be near to us in the sweetness of this moment. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, I pray. Amen.